you need solitary time to be with yourself and your own thoughts. Um, and you need, you really do need time to do that without other people around in the, in the project. The best work will come from people being able to come to conclusions individually and then share them collectively. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cut to Reveal. I'm Ricky and I'm here with my host, Peter. Peter, how are you doing? Yeah, doing well. Can't complain. Better than I deserve. <laughs> so <laughs> today, today's episode uh, will be an interview with the author of the book uh, that we made a video about. So mm-hmm. we made a video about uh, the book Documentary Editing Principles and Practice. And today we talked to Jacob Brica, who wrote the book and who works in a film school in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he's a very, very very knowledgeable person and uh, we enjoyed talking to him and also like uh, you know we tr- we lost the track of time so this is a long yeah. interview but in yeah. a good sense you know we yeah. lost the track of time because the conversation was so engaging to us I yeah think. for sure we got to talk about cut the nature of jump cuts um just the mindset of documentary editors and also like transitions for example right so yeah. that, that was a big for me that's 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 something i wanted to know because once I worked on a short documentary a few years ago, mm-hmm. that's something I really struggled with, like how to transition from one topic to the other. And he, he talks about this concept of hinge clips in his book. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we touch on. But he also like gives some examples of these things and what is his approach when he's looking for transitions. Uh, so I think these are like very, very valuable tips, uh, you know, that are like spread across the conversation that you will enjoy. Yeah. 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 It's very interesting talking with Jacob, who is so accomplished and so knowledgeable, considering that he's a professor of the art. So yeah. let's, uh, let's roll the tape. Let's roll the tape. How did you actually become an editor? As a child, I, was, I really loved radio. I was an avid radio listener. Um, and to me, the, the idea of, of just the, the SAG the the seg the the transition from one song to another was just something that that was endlessly exciting to me just how one song would come on and it would come on at just the moment where it would cut the other one off and the other one would kind of like fade in the background and um so i was you know i was really interested in music and in radio before i was interested in anything else and somehow, in some strange way, I think that has something to do with my interest in editing. Um, by the time I was later in high school, um, I was definitely sort of interested in film and such. Um, but it was something about that idea of the of the transition was really was fascinating to me. And I would even, you know, all the technology we had when I was like twelve and really into this was just a single record player, right? <laughs> one of those kind where it, it like a little auto thing where you've got four discs stacked there and then another one will plop on as it's ready to and so i only you know in order to like uh be a dj i had to do it entirely in my head so i would go from playing one record (laughs) and then in my head i would i would like okay here's where the transition starts and i'd take the needle off and then i would put the next record on and i'd put the needle back on and in my head i would have oh perfect (laughs) a perfect seg i didn't really come around to deciding to be an editor per se until a lot later i i got introduced to documentary filmmaking in college um, and started making my own documentaries after college and was definitely into filmmaking. But it was about three years after finishing college that I made a decision to 
go to the American Film Institute and to apply for edit uh, for their editing program. So it was sort of that that choice of like, what do I want to do if I if I do some kind of a graduate program that sort of forced me into thinking about, oh, there's this that editing could actually be a career. It, I, strange but i never even i was 25 before uh-huh, that uh-huh. ever settled into place it was like oh that's like a thing that one could do you know of course i had already edited my own things but sort of that identity of because there is an editor's identity i think um and sort of a pride in in process and a pride in work that really came about in my mid-20s as i started to learn about it and then uh kind of since then i think i've always thought of myself as an editor awesome and How did you like you know uh, got into documentary editing specifically? As I said, I took a, a fantastic class in college at Wesleyan University in Connecticut uh, called Documentary Realism. Um, yeah. With for a uh, with a, a professor named Jonathan Mednick who passed away many years ago, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, I of course had seen documentaries before but in terms of uh getting a real education in their history and thinking about them and starting to sort of practice that was that was something that was pretty formative uh just getting to to see a lot of work and to be around someone who who could really uh teach me um and really just the idea of working with fragments of real life in order to to create a statement or to to say something about the world, um, yeah. to investigate the world by being in it. Um, it, it, it's always the way that it's funny. I, for, um, I mean, I've just never really thought in fiction terms. I enjoy fiction. I read mm-hmm. novels. I, um, I enjoy fiction movies. I just don't, that's not the way that I create. Um, I've always feel like I've created more by just, uh, through in in the nonfiction realm so so it was it was in college that i got interested in documentaries and and then just was lucky to get to be around other people who are in that world especially starting around around um well actually really right after right after college there was a pretty thriving documentary scene in the san francisco area i started meeting people there and then Uh, there are quite a few documentary filmmakers in in Los Angeles, um, and that's where I moved to to go to grad school and um, just kind of started getting involved in, with other people and doing projects where I was mostly the editor. The trajectory of your film journey or film editing journey, was it just continuous or between the end of college and then graduate school, did you have like a break where you did some other stuff or more like edited films and whatnot? I really the the prime thing out of college for me was I I want to make documentaries. I didn't really and I didn't again I hadn't come to the idea that I was specializing um I was and so I got a job as a at a uh doing video services essentially like a corporate video job uh in in the San Francisco area for a technology research company. Um so sort of a Silicon Valley type outfit and that was fine with me because they at the time, you know, technology was still uh expensive-ish and just having access oh, yeah. to tools was a huge um Uh, I mean, there were systems like Media 100 and there there was there was stuff happening with nonlinear editing systems, but it was still a 
a clunky and not, uh, you know, I mean, Avid existed, but those were $20,000 plus, you know. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And so just having access to tools was really, um, was was a great side benefit of any gig. And that's, um, you know, that, that was sort of what I wanted to do. And so, yeah, I, I found myself always, regardless of whatever job I had, uh, money-making job, I was just making stuff. So these tended to be short documentaries on one thing or another. I was really... Um, I liked working with found footage. Uh, I liked doing sort of media criticism type things. Uh, that was sort of, my, and, and I had seen this film uh, actually in high school, even before I got to college called Koyana Scotsi uh, with, from Godfrey Reggio, which was really the one film that ever just truly blew my mind. <laughs> I, I was really never the same after I saw that movie. It, it, um, and if you look at my filmmaking for like the decade after I saw that, when I was 16, uh, I, I feel like I was trying to make remake Koyana Scotsi again and again and again <laughs> in my own way. Um, so that was a, that, that played a huge role in my, uh, in my imagination about what documentary could be about, um, and just sort of ju- ju- pure juxtaposition, you know, it's a film that is just, f- mm-hmm. uh, fragments of the real world, mostly with mm-hmm. some kind of time lapse or, um, photography, but set to a music score with occasional sound embellishments, but it's really just sort of images in juxtaposition with each other. Yeah. Um, I've seen it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've seen it. I, I mean, I, I remember actually like uh, seeing it uh, for the first time as well. Like I, I was into photography for a long time. So, um, you know, I, I was looking into that more like from my photography point of view by that time. But yes, but yeah, I, I was very impressed by that, by, by what they could accomplish with, as you said, juxtaposition of images. Which, yeah. which which is basically editing. <laughs> yeah, where did you where did you grow up? Oh, I'm I'm from Poland, so I haven't had actually like any experience with editing since I was like twenty, I don't know, five or something like that. Basically, I was supposed to be a civil engineer, so <laughs> my story mm-hmm. is a little bit different. I'm I'm like you know I just there was just a point in my life that that I just realized that. Oh no! Actually, my love, my passion is into you know into things that are more related to to, to art and visual art specifically. And even though I was quite good, uh, not to brag, but I was quite good at you know as the, at math and physics and chemistry and all this stuff, uh, I just decided to just like you know put it away and focus on what gives me you know gives me pleasure, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about embracing unexpected because like that's that's one of the like I think like principles you've mentioned in your book at the very beginning and uh, that's the one that I hear people like talking about from time to time both you know editors and directors as well I wanted to ask you if you have like you know specific examples of embracing unexpected uh, from your career when you ask about that and when we talk about this the <laughs> Uh, what immediately comes to mind is a, uh, a f- an old friend and someone who I have edited uh, his work um, before um, named Matthew Bazell, um, a director. Uh, I edited his film uh, Luna um, about the, about the, the rock band Luna. I edited a film of his called Jimmy Scott, if you only knew um, the tell me, do you miss me is the name of the Luna film. And when we would sit down to edit um, you know, we, I would be, in the editor's chair and he would be sitting beside me and we'd be going through things. And, Mm -hmm. and it was so um, 
common that we'd be playing things and, and he would just see an, like an accidental thing that I had done, right? I was on the way to getting to the thing that I wanted to show him. And he mm-hmm. said, what's that? What's that? What's that? Wait, wait, you just did, that was amazing. What, you know? <laughs> and so he loved this idea of, of uh, you know, he, he just loved these accidental moments that would uh, result and that I found really fun working with him because, uh, you know, too much of that and, and you get sidetracked, but nonetheless, there were things that really came out of that, that, that were just, um, and, and his spirit of it was very much like, here we are, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, anything could happen. It's simply like editing is such a, um, it's such a, an intellectually demanding task uh, where you're, you're are in, even if you do all of the right work of, of organizing your whole project and keeping things tidy and having places where things go, nonetheless, you are, you are basically holding a lot of variables in your, in your brain at any one time. You're always <laughs> yeah. trying to think yeah. about yeah. how, what an arrangement is and what it could be. And it's that flexibility of thinking that something, something seems to have a solidity in the way that it is. And then thinking this could be different. <laughs> this could be, what if, what if this, what if that? And so I think it's about trying to keep a balance between the, the thrust that says we need order. We need to take the chaos and, and, and buff the hard edges off of it. Yeah, we yeah. need to put everything into a very coherent um, uh, a coherent space where there's no confusion. There's no, uh, there's really no chaos. And yet you can really, uh, if you go too far in that direction, you can kind of take the life out of something. Um, you know, there's a quote in my book from, um, Mary Lampson who says, I've seen films really get lost in, in the final, in the finishing stages where you have something that has so much life to it. It's got, you know, it's got, there has this true unpredictability, right? <laughs> and then as you try to get towards a more perfect finished version, you just, you, you know, you can rough all those edges off it so much that you end up with something that doesn't no longer surprises it no longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's something about that dynamic that, um, that, that were to just to remember that that uh, there there is that sweet spot in between those things. That's a great point. That's a great point. Love it. Uh, I, I mean, I'm also like thinking about like you know the organizational aspect, the importance of organization and and prep work basically, or the, all the things you do be, before you actually you know cut the story together. Uh, yeah, C- can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, wh- what's your approach to organizing assets and you know uh, select reels? You know, I, I started doing this. It's so interesting. Writing the book, Documentary Editing, Principles and Practice, was a process for me that, that, um, that gave me a reason to reach out to other editors. I, of oh, course, I'm already in a community of editors, but it really, having a book to write is a great uh, excuse to <laughs> call people up and, <laughs> and to, to, to chat with them and to really go, do you, you know, how do you do things? How, how do you do it? How do you? And so... For me, it was a process sort of of discovery and realizing that things that I was doing were were actually very much common, <laughs> uh, and that no one, no no editor, no two editors necessarily do it the same way. Mm-hmm. But I think I think that process of of select reels, which is one of those one of those things, is is a real constant, um, and it's. Um, but I started doing it because I felt like I had no other choice. Like you, you know, I felt like, well, I don't know what the hell to do with this stuff. So 
I can at least take this first step and I can, I can just sort of watch things down and see maybe what I can get rid of. You know, maybe I can, I like, it, it felt like a, a necessary step because I couldn't figure anything else out that was better. Um, I've come to think of it more as it is that, but it's that uh, by necessity. And it's actually like a really productive, important part of the process. Um, and it, I, you know, I think it's just a, so I've always thought of it also as a process of sifting, uh, mm-hmm. where again, you've got these massive numbers of variables of, of what footage could be used, what yeah. way could it be used in what, mm-hmm. what are the, and even just like, what is here? Like what, mm-hmm. what, what is, what is, what is in this material? And you really don't get there until you start, uh, trying to build things into chunks and patterns and, um, and sort of start to see ideas just by putting things together in the same reel. Um, that's, it's just a, it's a way that you can preview things for yourself where if you look at, if you look at a bunch of clips in one context, they start to, they start to seem to have new possible meanings. Then if you look at them, same clips, but they're like those same clips might be used in a different reel and you, different things come out of them, you know? So it's really about, um, thinking about those the contextual meaning of everything by uh by sorting it and by um uh by grouping it and by sifting it um so there's really i don't know if there's i don't know that there's really a wrong way to do it except one that that has not enough uh rigor to it um but people come up with you know i love looking at other people's select reels on projects because you get the craziest titles (laughs) you get a you get a title of a select reel that would mean nothing (laughs) to anybody except for that editor and that you know whatever the team is that's sitting in that room but that doesn't matter as long as it means something to them, you know, as long as it's got something, uh, and some of them are fairly obvious. Um, but some of them are really like left field ideas. Like, like let's, yeah, we can, there's can be a bucket for that. Let's, yeah, let's stick it over there so that we watch those down together, you know? Um, and then, yeah, that's just the fact that once you do start thinning things out, then I think your perceptual abilities, uh, get much more focused. They get much greater. So if you're looking at, uh, let's just pick a number like eight hours worth of footage, it's really hard to, you know, like there's only so much you're going to be able to, to, to do with that. Once you've got something down to say two hours of footage, you can be, you can really start having, um, more, uh, more sophisticated ideas, better ideas about how think where things might go from there. Once you've removed the things that at least for sake of argument, are probably not going to, you've decided maybe they don't have value or they're going to have value just over here, you know, and not over there. Mm -hmm. So do you sometimes use like one, the same clip basically in a few of the select reels? Yes. Um, I mean, to me, it's uh, the first level of of importance is that everything has at least one place to go. So, and, and again, it's that, I think this is part of an editor's mindset is the, is sort of that, um, it's that process oriented anal retentive thing that says we've done it. We've been through it all, right? Everything has been, everything's been cataloged. It's all been, it all has a home, right? It's got some, Mm -hmm. so to me, that simply means that I have looked at everything that's there and I have either decided to, you know, at least provisionally discard it by not putting it in a select reel or I have put it somewhere, you know, it is, it's, there it is, you know, then I've, I can make that whole first pass of all the footage and, 
now everything is either in a select reel or it's been left in the raw footage. And of course we could go find it again, but for now we're going to sort of move on. And then the next time I'm looking at everything, I'm just looking at those reels. All I'm doing is looking at those select reels. So it's, it's like, it's just a different way to look at the, the raw footage. And yes, once I do that, then I start making, those are uh, like source-based select reels. They, 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 in general, they're grouped because of how it was that they were shot. All the stuff from one interview is going to be in a select reel. All the stuff that was shot in a particular verite shoot is going to be in that reel. Mm-hmm. But at that point, when you start going through those, those uh, source-based select reels, you start having ideas that are possibly, you know, multiple and you start creating topic-based select reels where there's sort of another layer on top of that, where I'm taking something from five different select reels and it goes in a new topic-based select reel where I'm kind of seeing ideas play out and I can think of them that way. Um, you know, the, the, the technology element is interesting here because Final Cut X, if one tries to, if, you know, if, if a lot of editors don't even want to go there, <laughs> uh, you know, I think understandably. But if you are, you know, there was a, a film on which we decided to use Final Cut X because of certain capabilities it had with uh, nesting um, uh, subtitles. And I found that it was a pretty amazing tool. And in that tool, it really is it really is guiding you very strongly towards... Um, Keywords? Yes, exactly. Keywording. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Keywording. It really wants it really wants you to use keywords. It, mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. everything is based around. So it's Final Cut X really works. It's more like a it's it's like a it's a database. You know, mm-hmm. it, it has these yep. database potentials so that every piece of footage very easily can can be in various places at once in ter- with keywords, and you can select um, a sub you know yeah. a, a, a yeah. subset of something, and that becomes a keyworded part, and that really has pretty powerful. Uh, Capabilities. I haven't always been able to use it in, like, even in Final Cut X, I still find myself doing some pretty traditional select reels with little title cards in a sequence, you know? And yet, in, in other times, I really have been able to use that where uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's because of the keywording, which is actually a pretty simple idea. It's not a really complicated thing. Yeah. But it isn't the way that Avid works, and it's not the way that Premiere works, you know. Yeah, I've heard a lot about it. I talked about it with a few editors who use it. And yeah, I, I think this concept is brilliant. I mean, yeah, uh, much more convenient, I guess, than, you know, the traditional way. Uh, in, at, in, at least in, in some cases, definitely much more convenient. It can be. I mean, it, 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 when I first started using it, I, I felt very uncomfortable because you had to work really hard to get it to behave like a, another, like the systems that we would be more used to mm-hmm. where, yeah. where everything just has one home, right? Everything is yeah. in a bin somewhere and that's where it lives. Like it's not really the way it works. It's everything is just, there is a, there's just like, there's different views of subsets of the whole. That's all yeah. that final cut does, you know? Um, and so you kind of have to change the way you change your, your expectations about how you're going to mentally understand where footage is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a useful exercise to go through. I found it very exciting to, 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 to work there. And I have actually chosen to use it on projects in the past. So do you find that the project dictates what tool you use? I guess what editing software are you using? And then also to go back to before the, I guess, when you start um, branching out into these different ideas, are you just seeing those organically or are you, when you had talked, when you said you were um, editing 
the uh, Luna documentary with the director being right at their, your, your side, is that more of like them being like, hey, think about this or think about this or, or, or how is that all coming together when you're, when you're sitting down? Well, let me answer the second one first. So when we were, when Matthew and I were sitting down, in general, we would, we, you know, I think most projects work in some version of, of this where uh, there's usually a lot of work that has to get done by the editor that doesn't really require the director to to be there. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and I mean, things are so different now, like, you know, for a lot of people, remote work is the norm at this point, you know, and that's just a, um, and editing quote unquote together, maybe like a zoom session or something these days, but, um, or some other software that, that, um, you know, enables that. Uh, but in general, like the project starts off with these, you know, very, um, uh, you know, like, okay, we're going to, I'm going to have two or three days to get this done and then we'll get together and we'll work on these things. So it's these sort of targeted sets of time. And by the end, you're really looking at, at, the final thing down, you know, everybody's all, all there just trying to hammer out different ideas. What if we did it this way? Uh, what if we, you know, uh, just playing around with different sequences? Uh, we're both in the room. Um, and, you know, that's that's something that really is afforded, by, especially by in-person work. I, I think there is for as much as my own career has benefited from the ability to work remotely, because almost all of my work <laughs> in the past like decade and a half has been remote. Mm-hmm. I do think that there is something there is something lost by not being in the same room together. I, um, I think there's, uh, if nothing else, other than just a, an intimacy with the other person, which itself mm-hmm. can facilitate better work. And in terms of the tool dictating the work, I mean, very specifically, this was a film called Marriage Cops, um, which is still, I worked on it for a while. It had to go on hiatus. It's um, being worked on in a different capacity now, Uh, but it was shot entirely in India. And so not in a language that either I nor one of the co-directors understood hardly at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other one uh, understood it fluently. And yet I was the editor and the other co-director, you know, didn't. So essentially we needed to be able to watch the footage subtitled. We needed to be able to, you know, and at the time at least, um, and this was probably five years ago, there was, we, we did a lot of research and neither in Premiere nor in Avid was there a really good solution for doing this? Whereas um, in Final Cut X, there was a way that you could uh, nest things where you really could create a subtitled version of something, watch it subtitled, and then make a cut like from the from the source to the sequence that would then include uh, by by the the nesting. It would include those subtitles, which could then be broken out into their original form and then adjusted. So that was that was one project where that was the reason why we chose Final Cut X. There wasn't any other reason. It was just like for our need to be able to just watch subtitled versions of things. In general, I think these days, Avid and Premiere, they work very... I have my own, you know, likes and dislikes of different parts of each of them, but they are very, very similar tools. And I, and I actually, you know, again, into a Final Cut X plug, the one system where that has ever truly made me feel like, wow, this is kind of faster <laughs> was Final Cut X. Um, even though it also has some, like there are things that you would... There are ways in which, uh, you know, Apple just loves to simplify, simplify, simplify. And in some cases, they <laughs> just do that to, yeah, to such a strong extent that there are capabilities that don't exist in that program that yeah. you really wish that they would, 
<laughs> so no, no, I don't think any one of them is is um, necessarily always you know perfect. But um, yeah, how do you find your editing like documentary editing jobs? Do they find you or do you find them? This is not a, an original answer by any means, but it you know. Uh, it's all about relationships, you know, it's all about, um, so, uh, contacts, et cetera. And I think that's built through various ways. Like that's, you know, sometimes students are undergraduate students who are thinking of graduate school are asking me, do I need to go to grad school or whatever? And I always think of it as like, well, that's a, like, there are great things about it. You don't necessarily need to do it in order to get a job. Um, but any situation you're in is going to afford you opportunities to make relationships with people. Um, yeah. So, for instance, there are people who I went to grad school with who I have now worked for. Mm -hmm. And that's just because we, you know, in that very intimate context where we're all just working on things in a sort of a feverish, <laughs> uh, intense way uh, and with some of the more lofty artistic things top of mind, you know, a little bit of the... the um, the deadline driven, uh, budget driven things, you know, receding a little bit to the background, you, you develop some really great relationships in that way that are really forged based on artistic, um, similarities or, or, you know, uh -huh. feeling, feeling at home with someone in the way that you, the way that you, you mutually see the world from an artistic point of view, you know, uh, or from a, from a style point of view or whatever. So, uh, that's a long way of saying that, my gigs have come about through lots of various ways, but they've always come about through some kind of relationship or, or another. The, you know, the big first big film that I edited uh, and probably the one that was the biggest from a box office point of view than anything I've ever edited was this film called Lost in La Mancha, which came out in 2002, um, which was a worldwide phenomenon in theaters. You know, it grossed well over a million dollars worldwide. It played in Europe, South America, on TV, everywhere. Um, it yep. was written up in every... And that was uh, like the directors of that film lived across the street from me. <laughs> that was how we knew each other, you know. Really? Uh, and it wasn't quite that simple, you know, like mm -hmm. the reason why we knew each other is because one of them had been friends with my roommate at Temple University And so they knew each other prior. They were moving to L.A. They stayed with us while they looked for a spot when they when they were coming to live in L.A. They really liked our street. They're like, maybe we can live here. They, they managed they found a way to rent the place across the street. <laughs> um, but I barely knew them at that point. And then we just got to be friends. You know, we took care of each other's cats. We had um, we had dinner parties. You know, we, we got to be you know, we, we enjoyed each other's company a lot. And then they had this project and they of course knew that I was an editor and they had a pretty decent budget for that. And they had a producer who was really pushing them to find someone with more credits than I had. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but they really, you know, we had a good working relationship, right? I mean, we actually had never worked yeah. together before, but we had a good relationship yeah. and they knew enough of my work that they, they were going to vouch for me and they actually felt better about being with me who had fewer credits, but they kind of knew me and they mm -hmm. felt like they knew my abilities and they would want to like spend time hanging out with me working. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. Then the per people that were being pushed by the producer who they didn't know who had all these yeah. credits, but what's that going to feel like, you know? So uh, to their credit and thanks to them, I had that first gig 
And so, and I've worked for them at various points since then, you know, and so a lot of the, a lot of the work that I've had are just repeat customers. So I happen to have one experience literally more than two decades ago. And then, you know, 15 years later, I get a call, you know, (laughs) it's not that we haven't been in touch in the meantime, but, but some combination of that kind of thing has been the case. And, um, so, you know, there's one job that I got on a, an early film called Beyond the Border, and I went on to edit five films for that filmmaking team that I really did just answer an online post. You know, I think oh, that's wow. the only gig, gig that I – and that one, I, I speak Spanish relatively well, um, and that was one of the reasons why I got that gig because a lot of it was in Spanish. It was shot in Mexico. So that was one thing where there was another little extra skill that really helped. I, I don't think they would have hired me if I hadn't had that. Um, but that's the one place where, oh, like I just answered, you know, I met them through, I can't remember where they were posting that, but um, everything else has come through some combination of someone giving my name to someone else and saying this person would be great, or I meet them through in one context and then we turn into, you know, work collaborators in another. And that can't be underestimated, the degree to which just personal familiarity and personal comfort can be a it can be a big part of a work relationship so yeah choosing someone you you want to spend time with yeah that that's wise that's always wise <laughs> <laughs> yeah and you're going to have to you know you're going to have to get to probably some somewhat uncomfortable places where you are not going to agree <laughs> yeah <laughs> and oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. you know like oh, yeah. in general oh, yeah. i think really good directors they want they want editors who <laughs> this is such a complicated dance but they want editors who have an opinion, right? They don't want a doormat. You know, they don't want somebody who's just going to push the buttons. And on the other hand, they, they, you can't really deal with someone who is a prima donna, you know, or who doesn't know their, or who doesn't know their place, you know, and that, that is something that, uh, and that is a tricky balance for anyone who, you know, so you have to care very intensely about it and fight for your point of view. And on the other hand, you have to know the fact that you're not the director <laughs> and right. that you, yeah. uh, and that perhaps you are simply wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so That's yeah. true. Jacob, I wanted to watch um, Missing in Brooks County, but I can't. In Poland, I can't watch it. It's I was really... able to watch it. It's very good. So I wanted to ask you some questions about that in, um, okay. which I thought were really interesting in, um, we, it's kind of funny that we had talked about building relationships and stuff because uh, Peter and I had done an, an, uh, an episode about just that thing where we get that kind of, okay, well, what about this? You know, what, how, when people ask us stuff, like, how do I get relationships, whatever, that you would talk about that. When it, it's great to hear you talk about it because you're kind of, I don't know, more legit than we are in regards to, like, the amount of t- how you've been doing <laughs> this and whatever. So, but um, another thing that... I wanted to ask you about in regards to uh, missing in Brooks County is that I thought it was, this is something that we had talked about also was the, the style of how editing has kind of changed over the years, not just in regards to like the technology of like, I mean, I started editing on three quarter inch tape with a video toaster. And then once, you know, once it got over to nonlinear editing was like, Oh my God, this is, you know, game changing, you know? Yeah. So, and so in that same sense of things evolving with the onset of like so much media coming out right now, like so much content and it not being just on like Amazon, but also on YouTube and people who aren't necessarily video editors or, 
but they're con- I don't know if they would they would become video editors, but they're essentially content creators. And how the style of editing has in the past no nos that we thought of spe- specifically like the jump cut have yeah. now become like oh that's just like <clears throat> a thing that you see and nobody blinks a lot eye out of it. And so I yeah. wanted maybe this is an, an elaborate buildup, but I thought it was very interesting within. Uh, missing in Brooks County, there's the interview with uh, Dr. Kate Bradley, I think is her mm-hmm. name. And she has with the one interview that she has where it's a close up. It's like that's the only time we see where it's like kind of those jump cup interviews. And so I was curious if you wanted to if you could like talk about that, where that was it was kind of the most. It was, first of all, like very different than any of the other interviews, just with the framing of it. But then the way that it was the stylistic, the, the way that it was edited was also different. Can you talk about that or how? The, how that came yeah. about. This is such a great topic and, a, and a, just such a huge topic. Uh, the way that, and I, I love the elaborate buildup because you're, <laughs> I think you're thinking, you're thinking along the same lines that I am where in, in just in watching stuff these days, it's so interesting to see how things are changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, YouTube is having and has had an enormous impact on the way that non-YouTube things are cut, you know, yeah. um, for as a, you know, as one, for instance, and, and just to, to talk a little bit more about that, the big broad scope of that, um, you know, in general, yeah, there's um, the pace of things, continues to in general like again this is such an overgeneralization but pacing i think continues to accelerate uh and there 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 is a study that's back there that i think is somewhat old but at the time they were doing a like a a 30 year uh span of it might have been from the the 80s the 90s and the aughts or maybe it was the 70s the 80s the 90s and they were looking at they took some cohort of films uh where they had some way of, of doing sort of an objective analysis and they were looking at how many cuts per, per minute there were in average, in, in films that they, you know, Hollywood films or whatever. And you could see it was basically a straight line towards, <laughs> towards more cuts per minute, you know? Yeah. And so the, you know, the, the audience, which is a huge overgeneralization, but a general audience in general is, you know, like our brains are tuned to accept information in a particular way at a particular moment in history. And so you can't really, you can get away from that to some degree, but you have to understand the context you're in. Missing Brooks County is a very, um, I would say a pretty deliberately edited film. Mm-hmm. It has a, it has a pretty deliberate pacing. It, uh, it does not move super fast. I also, I don't think it's a, I mean, uh, it's not a slow film. It's not a, and yet I think there are people who are used to, um, who are used to a certain style of something that might find it a little pokey. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, so we decide, I mean, that was decided by, you know, me and the two directors and just comes by the way that you're you intuit how you're doing it and then and then as you're tightening things up how far you're going to go um but we felt that the content you know to some degree seems like it should always inform the form so Mm -hmm. yeah like how does it feel should should it be related to what it's about and and what the overall style of the thing is and here this was about a very large vast space that was easy to get lost in mm-hmm. that has where time just sort of, you know, like years tick by. Um, and so to one of the major, you know, uh, goals was to try to put the audience 
in that space and to, to let you feel like you actually spent time there and you felt what it was like to be there. And that means that you have to um, put people in verite scenes in what feels like real time. Mm-hmm. And of course, real time is no matter how slow or fast you're doing it, it's always an illusion <laughs> yeah, in editing. We are, <laughs> there is, right. you know, um, but our version of that was one that we wanted to, you know, you could take a breath. There are characters who take breaths. I think some of the, my favorite moments in it are silent moments or moments where pauses are taken. Mm-hmm. And so that was the general feeling for it. And then the the part that you're referring to with Dr. Spradley, that <laughs> was just a... I, I, it was, I don't know, it was easy to do. It was like, well, <laughs> we need to we need to get these, you know, this, these are the three parts that have to, you know, that we need in here. And there isn't a great cutaway to use. And yeah. why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> <laughs> and so in a way it violates, you know, it violates one thing that I try to give to my students a lot, which is, okay, well, you know, you ought to, you know, any film is going to set its own rules. It's going to tell you what the landscape is and it's going to, to kind of uh, set the rules and then and then play by them, right? And mm-hmm. you, as you noted, that's I don't think that happens anywhere else in the film. So it's an anomaly, which in general I find distracting, right? The <laughs> film is sort of set set you up to to uh, to expect one thing and then it gives you something else. Uh, on the other hand, yes, like I think the fact that people are used to that makes that an easier uh, an easier sell. Plus, also, <clears throat> I've always found like to me what's fascinating about jump cuts is that. I think I still think even even given the fact that people are somewhat used to them, there's still a way to do them that feels really wrong. There's still a way yeah, to do them that course. feels very disruptive and feels yeah feels arbitrary and and feels kind of cheap, you know. And then there's a way to do them that feels somehow more organic. And it has I think it usually has to do with the rhythm. You have to play it like like it was a real sentence, you know, like, mm-hmm. like as if you have to play it as if it was one single clip that it would all, that it would be a perfect, you know, like the, the, the cadence would be spot on, or maybe actually what you're trying to do is it's a film where you really are trying to accelerate things and you're, you're deliberately jumping, th- you know, like you really want someone to found, sound very uh, sort of, you know, like caffeinated <laughs> or yeah. something. Yeah. Right. So, <clears throat> Uh, there's so almost endless uh, permutations of, of how one could justify the the particular editing of any given uh, segment of a, of a jump cutted part. But in that part, it was it's usually born out of necessity, right? We've decided yeah. these are the and but then then I think there is a way to do it that is that is artful and that uh, you know in, in a way you, like it just you know you you the dire- you the editor and the directors you you all have to like it <laughs> right and yeah. then it has to have you've by this point you've done so many uh rough cut screenings that you've definitely heard from people if they've been if that has been a troublesome thing you know so you you if if that is true then you you're going in with your eyes open like okay well some people aren't going to like this um in our case nobody batted an eye with that stuff so yeah it, it's probably a sign of the times because you don't really see, I mean, as we pointed out, like YouTube is where you really see jump cuts and mostly in talking heads like that. So I feel like maybe five years ago, if you had done that, people would be like with pitchforks and their torches, but because <laughs> you kind of see it on the regular, it's just like, Oh, this makes sense. And, um, kind of how you said, like there's continuity in that where even though, yeah. you know, it's, 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 
jarring, but it's not taking you out because you're focusing on what she said. And because, yeah, I mean, missing in Brooks County is so compelling anyway that even though that I noticed that, it was more like, oh, this is interesting because seeing everything else, like it's a different style. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's, I thought that was very interesting. Um, and then to go back to another thing that you had mentioned was, you know, obviously when you're sitting with directors and you're watching it over and over again, or you had mentioned that it was everything about Brooks County was very, very deliberate. And so I wanted to ask you in regards to not just Brooks County, but also any other, the previous pro- projects, because I know that you also have directed and produced, um, and because you've been making, uh, as we all make our own films, which you direct and produce also, but within these larger projects, how involved are you within, I guess, the production before it reaches post? Um, and this, the reason I'm asking this is because I thought it was very interesting, which um, a, a favorite section that really I thought was very powerful is in the beginning of the film or closer to the beginning of the film was establishing um, the man who went missing, Homero, and the texts between him and his mom. Mm-hmm. And then just that whole sequence just, was just like kind of gave me goosebumps. So I was curious yeah. as to how deliberate like that was. And kind of going back to what you talked about when we talked about organizing is like, we are, are those things that are, are starting to like, you're seeing like the twinkles of those ideas as you're going through the footage? Or like, is that something that, mm-hmm. okay, this is what, this is kind of, you've figured out a structure and this is how you're sticking to it. You know what I mean? If that makes mm-hmm, sense. Mm-hmm. In that film, there are two, there are two main stories that have sort of a narrative trajectory to them that we follow. So one of them is Omero's story. The other one is, is Juan's story. And there was a third story that for a long time was in the film. Um, and in terms of editing, we were taking things into. So we had uh, we had reels that were just character reels. So there was a there was an Omero reel where we had all of the scenes with Omero, and we were playing around with what order we could put them in. And some of it was very obvious because things have a chronology, but we don't tell them in the film. We we do jump back and forth some. Uh, but so at, on the basic level, we're just putting things in one character reel versus another character reel and then watching it through without any as if the movie was just about this one character. And then we're, mm-hmm. from there, we're going to figure out how is it that we where do we pause? Where do we what what is present time and then what is past? When, right. when do we make those changes and such? Um, and with respect to that one section with the texts, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that was I think that was Jeff Bemis's idea. So oh, okay. I I worked with two co-directors on this, and then we all three produced it together. And uh, one of those co-directors is my wife. We mm-hmm. spend a lot of time to each with each other, <laughs> both both you know in our daily lives and in our film lives. So we had a we had this sequence of Omero, and there was a you know we had all these assets. We had material that for you know lucky for us uh the the their, his family his extended family especially his brother and sister-in-law mm-hmm. were quite uh eager participants and collaborators with us in making the film and they had saved a tremendous amount of material from when the, when from this thing that happened you know a while before we ever met them but when he first yeah. went missing so they had saved all their texts. They had saved all these recordings of calls they had with Border Patrol and with these with these coyotes. And, and so there was all of this material that they gave to us. And so we're just trying to f- think about how to put the audience back as if we're in real time. And we are that family who has their loved one go missing and Omera yeah. goes missing. And so there were these texts and and... 
just first reading them, like there's just this awful, you know, it's just text on a page, but knowing what, what the outcome was seeing these one way texts where it's like, you know, where are you? And then a pause, a very long pause and then nothing comes back. And then another one out there, it was just a, it was a simple question of how do we dramatize this? And, Mm -hmm. and I think it was just an idea that, well, let's, let's put the text on the screen and, and Jeff is kind of a whiz at, I mean, it's very simple uh, animation. And then it was just about how much time do we wait in between those? Mm -hmm. Um, And then how do we let the sound design in those moments? Cause we're using drone shots over places that are in Brooks County that he could have been, you know, Mm -hmm. um, how you know how do we let the sound design fill in these gaps and how do yeah. we make you wait just long enough to feel uncomfortable but not so long that you are getting annoyed you know mm-hmm. um, or yeah. that you don't understand the purpose of the pause you know right um, so anyways that's an example of something that was one person's idea uh, you know in any editing um, in any um, post-production process you're looking for ideas from here there and everywhere and yeah. You know, in general, you're just trying to find the best way that something can work. And the most important thing is that that all everyone who is the, who is part of the creative team can, you know, either starts at or can arrive at a similar sensibility as to what the right thing to do is. Mm-hmm. You get real trouble if you have just basic fundamental disagreements about what what is good, (laughs) you know, or what works or what doesn't. Um, And sometimes you have to try these things out. You have to like go in this direction for a while and see how the film feels if you do it this way. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you do have to have those arguments so that you can get to that consensus, you know. Um, Luckily, I think we came to a pretty nice cohesion on that. And, you know, I mean, the amount of time that we spent deciding exactly how much pause there should be until a particular music cue hits, you know, (laughs) like we loved going over that kind of stuff. Like how long can we, how long can we wait so that it's not telegraphing the action? It's not like telling you something too obviously, but it's also still giving the needed emotion, you know? Uh, So we were, by the time we finished, we were all, feeling very in sync about what the, um, you know, what the right quote unquote right thing to do would be at any given moment. How, how do you deal with getting fresh perspective? Because like, I think this is a struggle for every project that goes on for a long time that after, you know, seeing like 20 versions of a film, you're losing fresh perspective. So how do you deal with it? Well, that's just a given. And, and it's, um, it's a given that every, every practitioner uh, has to has to deal with and I think it's just what are your strategies for doing it and how how much experience do you have in in doing that I mean I think one of the major qualities of an editor is the ability to somehow <laughs> sit down you know and watch something that you've seen for you know this is the 147th time that you've seen it yeah and to somehow bring yourself back to that place where it, you're a, you're a fresh viewer you've never seen this before what am I going to get out of it you know what can I and so that's a muscle that I think you can develop I I think I've gotten better at it over the years I think that simply you know you learning by doing you do it again and again and again and having you know if you do that enough where you go through these you know periods of like 
of not being able to see it afresh and then watching it with a test audience or mm-hmm. with trusted friends or whatever and having that experience of seeing it through someone else's eyes. That's a really important part. And that's why those those screenings are important to get that those perspectives from other people. I think that helps you build the muscle of being able to do it even without the other people in the room. And then there are times where there's no way that you can you, you simply need an outside perspective. You need somebody who doesn't know it because there's a limit to how much you can not know, <laughs> you know, right. willfully not know you, right. you are going to be over familiar with it, you know? So, um, it's a combination of just, it's, it's just a rigorous process of, uh, of finding the right moments to share rough cuts, uh, having those screenings in a way that solicits the very best, uh, feedback. Um, and, and, you know, finding ways to be neutral and non-reactive. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. you want to tell yeah. people why, like, no, you're wrong that you haven't liked it, you know. <laughs> uh, but that's almost never true, you know, like that's almost never, uh, you can't you can't win an argument with an audience that way by like, <laughs> by, you know, trying to browbeat them into something that just isn't working. There's also things that I do where I will like, even if I just have to like, push my chair a little further back from the screen, Mm -hmm. um, turn the sound up just a little bit more, turn a light off, um, just something that will physically change the way that I'm looking. I'm always trying to do it on full screen, you know, any little thing that can, that can like break up your, facilitate that feeling of, of, of not knowing, uh, is, is helpful. Being the audience member. Yeah. Get it. The thing that, that, that like I often think about, when thinking about documentaries is this concept of someone who actually does very long takes. I just always think about Werner Herzog and how he mm-hmm. deals with his films. And, you know, he, he talks a lot about this concept of uh, ecstatic truth. Uh-huh. And this is like, this is a super fascinating topic to me because basically, you know, he he says that, let me actually quote him here. He says that, Ecstatic, tr- ecstatic truth is mysterious and elusive and can be reached only through fabrication and imagination and stylization. In your book, you say that, you know, uh, to determine if your film is still like, you know, on the right side of ethics, so to speak, you should ask, ask yourself a question, does this series of small lies tell a larger truth? But, you know, Werner Herzog, like, he t- sometimes takes it to extreme, I think. And I, I can't remember the, t- the the title of the film, but in one of his films, he, like, puts a quote from, I don't know, Albert Einstein, I think, on the screen that is, like, totally fake. And, you know, it's... It, <laughs> and you don't know it's fake. You don't know if it's fake. You don't know it. You're done with the film. You don't know it. I just know it because I've seen, like, you know, an interview with him where he just said that he made it up. And so the question that I, yeah, I always ask myself is, how far is too far? Like, can you think of good examples where, you know, fabrication of the stylization, fabrication actually leads to something that is, like, you know, speaks a greater truth? Well... I think the operative word within his phrase ecstatic truth is ecstatic. It's not truth. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's the, uh, it's the place where one feels emotionally something exciting and something that, that feels, feels true. It feels, it feels like you've been, you know, like 
it, 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 it's that ineffable thing where you, you, it, yeah, it hits you in a certain way. One way to talk about this is to think about it from the point of view of, uh, you know, coming at it through fiction. There's a interesting, um, there's this director, Barry Jenkins, uh, who made Moonlight and, uh, and then he, he made, um, the, his most recent thing was this series, the underground railroad, um, (laughs) And he talked about in an interview how, uh, you know, the Underground Railroad was a, it wasn't a a literal railroad. It was a, it was a way, it was a set of sort of um, relationships and connections that, uh, you know, black people had, slaves had uh, of trying to find uh, passage, you know, safe passage uh, in a, you know, a dangerous uh, world to try to um, escape. But he literalizes it in, you know, in that, uh, and I have, I regret that I haven't seen that yet because it's, I've heard that it's, it's amazing. Um, But he talked in an interview about how there was, you know, when he was growing up in school and he was learning about the Underground Railroad, you know, he read about it in a textbook. He, and he never really understood it until he read Beloved by Toni Morrison, which is this fiction book, right? But it's about slavery. And it's, and so for him, you know, only coming at it through a fictional point of view, did he really understand its, you know, I guess you could say its emotional core. It's for him, he didn't understand the truth of it until he got at it through fiction. Um, like the, the, and so that's, you know, that's another way to sort of think about it is there are, what are we trying to convey to an audience and how do we get there? I tend to feel in a documentary that, um, I, it's hard because there are documentaries where I I don't I, I feel wrong about it. I feel that I have been tricked and that that somehow someone wasn't playing by the rules and I react I react in the negative. Uh, hmm. There are other films that do that and yet I feel ecstatic. <laughs> I feel. Uh, I feel very excited and I feel like there there was something very. Uh, you know, something kind of amazing that, that got at that. Um, you know, there's um, the act of killing the Joshua Oppenheimer film where they are, um, you know, using staged reenactments to try to get at some kind of emotional truth. And in that film, there's an arc with Anwar, who's, uh, who's this killer admitted, you know, uh, genocidal killer who is mm-hmm. trying to explain these places where these things happened. And the arc of that film is that at least the conceit of how it's shown is that even someone like that has th- like, there is something innate in humans that will eventually cause someone like that to reckon with, with their, with their past. And so there's a scene at the very near at the end where he just starts retching. He starts, he starts like dry heaving because he's yeah. at the, like, there's just something emotionally that's coming to him about what he's done and what mm-hmm. the, you know, even though he's talked very dispassionately about it for sure, here was the place where he killed them. Here's the place we did that. There's something that happens through the process of having, really gone through being the subject of the documentary and doing the reenactments that has mm-hmm. brought him to this place where he can no longer like his body, his physical body is starting to realize it, even though his brain hasn't yet, you know? So that's the conceit in that film. Um, so to me, like if a, like that felt very true to me, I, I would like to believe that that is true, that there are not even the most evil people we can imagine. There's something at the core of all of us humans that we, none of us can get beyond. Right. Mm-hmm. 
so because I believe in that, I bought into that truth of that film, even though there's a lot of manipulation that it takes to get you there, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, there, I, I mean, it's so hard because it's getting easier and easier to, to do a lot of, to, to fabricate a lot of these things. And what I fear is that, is that people are getting more and more used to assuming that documentary is just another made up thing that feels a little dangerous to me. Um, and that's hard because I do think some of the most interesting stuff happens at the margins. You know, it happens, uh, you know, there's this film, uh, by the Ross brothers, um, bloody nose, empty pockets, uh, from a couple years ago that showed at Sundance that purports to be the last night in a, um, in a bar in, uh, Las Vegas. And it's all the regulars who are coming back and it's a documentary. That's how it was. That's it's in the documentary category at Sundance. It's billed as a documentary and it's just one long evening, a verite evening shot with several cameras of, of the like the place is going to shut down. You can see there's all these regulars there all these, you know, regular drinking folks. And it's just one long night there. And in fact, it was the only thing that was shot in Las Vegas was the exterior to the club hmm. like it was actually shot outside of new orleans and in fact what they did is they solicited uh bar flies like regulars not at one bar but at a whole host of bars around the area and said hey come to this one for one night we're going to shoot this thing and then people kind of essentially they sort of played themselves they said here's the general idea of what the idea is of what's happening it's as if you're at your bar and it's the last night you know and then they just shot the whole thing so essentially there's like everything about the way that you're led to believe about what you're seeing is a lie. It's not in Las yeah, Vegas. Yeah. These people don't actually, there's not one bar. It's a, it's an amalgam. It's a, but there are really, really great moments in that film. There are, you know, moments that feel very, very emotionally true. And I think their justification would be that that's what they're going for. And, uh, and if you, you know, uh, if you read up enough on it, like nobody's hide, like they didn't actually hide what their process was. As soon as you start getting interviews coming out, they, they're very frank about it. And if you look at the Sundance, uh, you know, the festival blur very carefully, it's a very coy, like in so many words, they're telling you there's something, (laughs) there's something, you know, that's made up about this, (laughs) you know? So, um, part of it is that we have to take all of the extra filmic things in, into context. So no film ever actually exists just on its own. We always come into it having some, we've, we've been brought there by something. There are things in the poster. There are things even in the title itself that give us clues. Um, and I don't have any answers as to what's too far. It seems like so contingent in every, but, the, but I do, you know, like any other audience member, I think I have a place where I feel, I feel right about some things and I feel wrong about others. And I, maybe I feel like it, like it's just something about the, have you, have you, have you gotten to that place in a way that, that feels like you've respected the audience in some fundamental yeah. way? I don't know. Yeah. 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 I love the examples you gave. <laughs> really good. Really good. Another thing I wanted to ask uh, you about from from your book, actually. Uh, so, you know, I, I only edited one short documentary in my life. Uh, but the one I worked on, I really struggled with, like, you know, with moving between, like, topics. So that that's something that I really struggled with. It, it was a few years ago. I'm pretty sure that I would do a little bit better now, but <laughs> but it doesn't matter. So you, you talk about this concept of uh, hinge clips in your book. Uh, so 
kind of like thinking about do you have other tips or strategies for you know moving throughout the the content for moving throughout uh you know the narrative of the film first of all don't i would say don't try to create the the hinges too quickly um it they don't mean it like they they're you don't you won't know until you're relatively far along uh what you need. You don't know, you won't know until you're relatively far along, uh, where the transition points might be. You won't know even like, even like what these various things that you're coming back and forth between A, B and C, is it going to be between A, B and C, or is it going to be between A, B, C and D, or is it just going to be between A and B? Um, so you sort of have to do enough work to get the structure functioning in a, in a yeah. way that is semi-coherent, <laughs> at least, mm-hmm. um, it's only at that point that you uh, that that you kind of need those things, um, <clears throat> and then it's sort of like a it's this it's this thing that I think editors get good at of just trying to keep your awareness level up. So, and you're you're keeping your awareness level up about various various things all at once. But one of them is just what could make an interesting transition. Um, and so it's really sort of having those feelers up and going, oh, this is, listen to way, listen to how this, you know, listen to the, how the, the end of this little interview bite goes, they go from here and then they go over there. That would, could we employ this? You know, could we, um, or it's a more manufactured thing where it's just a purely visual thing. There's something that I've, uh, written about in the, uh, there's a new book that I've just turned the manuscript in for. And there's a point in this film, uh, Asif Kapadia film, uh, Diego Maradona, which is about the Maradona, the, 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 the footballer, um, yeah. very famous footballer. And there's a great, mo- very simple little moment in that film. Um, but I just think it's extraordinarily well done where there, you know, there's all this archival stuff. He's at the top of his fame. He's playing for Napoli. He's playing in Naples, Italy. He's like a, the quotes in there are so great. Like, like basically the, you know, Naples was like, quote unquote, the armpit of Italy. It was like, it's like the, the part of Italy where that just gets, uh, gets no respect. Right. And so the fact that they had, that they were, they had Maradona playing for them and they were winning, winning, winning. People were just going nuts. The Italians, they were just going nuts. They, there's a quote where they're like, yeah, you know, almost everybody in town had a picture of him. A lot of them put it right next to Jesus. (laughs) You know, it was that (laughs) level of, it was that level of adoration, you know? Um, and so you get this montage with, with audio clips like that. And it goes to this, this, um, non-dialogue montage where you just see all these still frames and he's getting his picture taken with these people and with those fans, these old people, these young people, these, like, it seems like everybody wants their picture taken with Maradona, right? Click, 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 click. And then there's one final click and it's with a new guy. This one pause is held a lot longer and there's this very slow move in. And then there's this very, very subtle underscore music that comes in that's slightly ominous. And we are going away from Maradona and toward this other dude. And that's the hinge clip into, we're like, wait a second, I've seen this guy before. And he is, it's, or it's been seeded like 15 minutes earlier that he was kind of, he was, you know, he, he came to Italy and there's this there's kind of a crime family that kind of runs things around there. And we've been introduced to this this character, the main like boss of this crime family. And we're like, Oh my God, that's this dude. Right. And then we go into that guy and we realize, 
uh-oh, like Maradona has been palling around with mobsters, you know? So, um, but it's this, it's a silent transition because we go from, he's, everybody wants a piece of him. He's super famous. The mob people also want a piece of him and he's gotten in, in with them. Right. And that's exact. And the transition happens purely visually. And that's the hinge clip is that one. It's that one of the picture of the two of them because it, it connects to both of them. It's part of, yes, he's getting his picture taken with a bunch of people, yeah. but it's the first clip of this whole segment, which is about, I'm forgetting the name, um, Carmona, the, the, whatever his last first name is, Carmona. Yeah. And it's going to be about that, right? So, um, so who knows how they came up with that? Like, um, but in a way, you have to know what the need is first, and then you mm-hmm. can find your way to it. Um, and it's no good if it's just like, it's super clever, but it's just showing off how you can do it. And it makes no, it has to make sense with what's the next logical thing that we want to hear about. So mm-hmm. it has to, you know, like really the more important thing in a, in a way is like, what is the narrative flow? And then that's kind of like the, that's the juicy, very important, but in a way it's kind of icing on the cake that, that leads you there in a way that feels, uh, like more artful, you know, and more subtle. Beautiful. <laughs> so I like to ask editors about how they stay productive and efficient in their editing pay. So do you have tactics for that that you use on in, in your editing sessions? It's a great question because I think it's very hard these days. Um, yeah. The um, calls for our attention are real. Like it's, yeah, you know, the whole, <laughs> yes, the, you know, the whole social media world is built on, on attention, you know, and it's, the, it's our attention that they make their money off of. So they find very, and there's just, and there's just so much out there that one could look at. So I, I feel like in some ways I have, am not successful at this. <laughs> I, uh, you know, depending on what's going on with the news, I may be checking in with, you know, various things several times an hour, you know, like little tiny little, little like, or just like the, that I'm going to check my email, you know, so I've, I will start simply by admitting a certain amount of defeat <laughs> um, that, you know, just to like, I'm only so successful at this. Um, but the strategies I have, I mean, um, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of simple. Like what are, what is the time that I can actually just carve out, you know, like I, I need to, I need to not have anybody need me between, you know, these hours, you know, and I need to, uh, have some one way or another, some distance, you know, um, even, even if it's not physical distance, I'm just in the basement, but I'm, nobody's expecting me to be anywhere. I don't have to check the email. I don't, you know, so it's, I think it's really about carving those times out. And then I think paying attention to your own, to your own rhythms. So for instance, I'm definitely a morning person. Uh, I, and I've only grown, I used to, you know, get a lot done editing late into the night, but as I've gotten older, that doesn't work for me anymore. And I don't think it ever (laughs) worked that well to begin with, you know? So like, I know that I'm, I have better ideas. I'm more productive in the earlier hours of the day and I might as well just knock off at four o'clock because I don't think I'm going to come up with anything great after that anyways, you know? Um, so it's just like, you know, arranging your life around what your natural proclivities are and, and when you're maybe at your best is another, uh, is another part. I mean, there are these apps out there that will, uh, forcibly, you know, uh, restrict you theoretically from internet access for a certain amount of time, but you can always just go and undo it. You know, it's like, um, so it's, um, 
well, I, you know, it really, it's like whatever works. Um, uh, but, but I, I still do very much believe in the idea that you do need, you need solitary time to be with yourself and your own thoughts. Um, and you need, you really do need time to do that without other people around in the, in the project. Like, cause the best work will come from people being able to come to conclusions individually and then share them collectively. Mm -hmm. Um, so every editor has probably had situations where they've felt over, they've just felt like the director has been on top of them. You know, there's been no space to have them to have their own private imagination about things. And I've definitely been in that situation before. And, uh, somehow there's something about the autonomy of, of silence and the autonomy of aloneness that that is necessary even if it's not sufficient like you know you also very much need the the collaboration and the all the other ideas and the um and other people to tell you that your ideas aren't working you know one of the biggest problems of young generation is that they don't have time to be bored right and it has been proven <laughs> that you know the most creative work actually happens when you're bored when you allow yourself to be bored Yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated with, like, you know, this this concept of, of productivity. And, you know, I, I'm guilty of that as well. I'm defeated, like, daily. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but at the same time, I think, like, you know, I think many people do not recognize how important it is to, to hone on that skill, on that skill yeah. of, you know, staying focused and, you know, carving, as you said, carving out, Uh, you know, a period of, of a day where you just, you know, don't allow anything else to distract you from, from the work that you do. You know, editing is a, this is such a, this is a, a commonplace. It's not, a, but editing, editing is a, um, editing is an exploration. Mm. It's always an exploration and you don't really know whether something is going to work until you go and, <laughs> and try to put it together mm. and, and you, you kind of play it out a little bit. Um, And so you really do need to like sort of in order to think, think, think something through, you have to actually put it into, you know, you have to put it into action. You have to build that idea of a part of a sequence or of a in order to see whether the thing that was that was the idea, whether it has any merit or whether, you know, it maybe it on its own didn't have merit. But the thing that it brought you to was the good idea, you know. So um, so you need that that time to just play out the idea and figure out what the best version of it is, you know, and every editor has their own compass as to how long that's going to take. Like you do get, you know, like I can look at something and go, okay, this is probably going to take me about 45 minutes to figure out, to, to sort of build it and, and decide for myself whether it's worth pursuing beyond that, you know, mm -hmm. or this is going to take X amount of time, or that's going to take this amount of time. Um, but you need that time in order to do it in order to even to just get to the point where you can decide, okay, we're not going to pursue that. <laughs> um, right. but, but you wouldn't know, you know, you, it would have been, you know, if you don't do that, then you've got several unexplored avenues, some of which would have been the right thing to do, you know? So mm -hmm. you need all of those false starts. You need all of the, that, that exploration in order to get to where the good ideas are and, um, You know, as I think Jeff Richmond says somewhere in, in, in the book, you know, you need the bad ideas to get to the good ideas. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but um, yeah. a lot of times you, you never really know where something really cool is going to come from. And sometimes it comes at the end of three hours of, of absolute torture, you know, <laughs> of something that just, you know, was not fun at all and didn't work, you know. 
Do you have like your personal, I don't know, career struggles, you know, connected to uh, editing? I've chosen to have kind of a dual career. So, you know, I'm an academic and I'm an editor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that has uh, been a wonderful, very fortunate thing for me. Um, but it's not without its compromises. You know, there have been times when there were projects that I've really wanted to work on that I essentially just couldn't because my my academic career demanded certain things of me. You know, if you're a full-time teacher, <laughs> there's, you know, like, uh, I've, you know, I've chosen to have that, uh, that arrangement and I've gotten to work on great projects despite it. Um, but there was a project recently that I am sure is going to be just a friggin' fantastic film. And I had a very long two hour, two hour plus conversation with the director followed by another, you know, like we went very deep into the, to the possibility of me editing this film. And in the end, she concluded that the hour, the, the way that it, I was going to have to do it, like when, you know, when it was the, the schedule on which we would edit it just wasn't going to work for her. Mm. And, and that, you know, like I actually was, when she made that determination, I was actually glad that she did that because yeah. it would have made, even with that schedule, I would have been, I would have been more busy than I would want to be, you know? And so, um, so in a way, like the hard thing got done for me, but still that's too bad because that's a project that I would have loved to have been on just because I, I saw the potential in the raw material and I really liked her so much and what, what she seemed to be trying to do with the film. Um, so that's something that's, that's, um, it, like I wouldn't trade it though. Like I think I've just gotten so much out of, um, having, just i think i think being able to to teach is is uh it's a gift it's an honor it's um it's hard but it's really really rewarding um getting to and it, and it and it really brings you back to some of the more uh, simple joys of of this process because you get to be with people for whom a lot of this stuff is brand new <laughs> you know yeah. uh, we all get after you know enough years and enough, you know, struggles with our own <clears throat> careers or our, or the way the business works or whatever, you know, I think a lot of us are, even if we don't know it, we're somewhat jaded, but when you're dealing with students all day long who are just like thrilled, like you wouldn't believe that something is working in their film, you're like, you know, it's amazing to be around that. That's, yeah. that's, uh, that's uh, so, so I guess that's maybe the one thing about my career that is, is, uh, you know, very specific to me, um, that is a minor struggle. But again, like I've been fortunate to have situations that have allowed me to continue working on really interesting, uh, projects at various times. So with that idea of you being a teacher and seeing like this new generation, kind of introducing this new generation of editors for, in your opinion, I guess, what do you think are the most important qualities to a great documentary editor? I think tenacity <laughs> uh there's a like uh commitment tenacity i think you have to you have to love i don't know i'm i'm i might be just generalizing from what i love about editing to overgeneralizing it for anyone but mm -hmm. um but i think one of the greatest joys of any editor is finding finding a piece of material that that never really had life to it before. Mm. And you've finally found it. It's found its home within the film. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's either like a part of a scene that wasn't working that is now has now is like a just a, an electric, brilliant, you know, wonderfully emotive part of a scene, or it's a scene that never really had much meaning or 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 excitement, and and now it's in a place where it's full of meaning and excitement. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, I think just a a a drive to find those moments. Like that's, that's what, that's what gets me up in the morning. <laughs> it's like, how am I going to find, how am I going to, where, where is everything going to find its home? You know? Um, and humility, uh, it's this weird combination of, of, um, ego and humility. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I do think you need a certain amount of, of again, independent thought, independent, like, I know how this can work. What if it worked like this, you know, or, and also like, um, I know how this can feel. I know how we can make this have a certain rhythm, you know, like, and that, you know, that takes a certain amount of ego and of a very specific individual thought. And then the humility part is the fact that, um, just that there's, it's going to take a lot, a lot, a lot of work to find the stuff that actually stays in the film um and that thing which is no longer so painful to me but i know earlier in my career you know coming to rough cuts where uh where i was (laughs) you know just completely convinced that we were almost done or whatever and you know (laughs) you have a crickets you know yeah (laughs) um like that that you so that i don't know what is that that's a uh is that um like sadomasochism or (laughs) or uh you know or is that just a um it's you know you have to like you have to be willing to go go to those places and to come back from them you know um a good sense of humor um you know i think any editing any edit with a certain number of people after a while develops a certain gallows humor (laughs) um related to the topic because you've just you've been through a lot together and you know, nobody else would possibly make these jokes about the real lives that are going on with screen because yeah. it would be wrong, you know, but um, because you have been there, you know, you, you know, like you're forced into that role. Um, and uh, you know, creativity of course. Um, uh, and then, yeah, like to some, like I think most editors have some, love of process of just like you know for instance i don't know <laughs> i love making little spreadsheets for my work where mm-hmm. like you know it's like and then there's certain tasks where i can i can like put it all in green meaning that i've finished it <laughs> you know <laughs> and then the good. next one is you know yeah. uh things like that where you're like you know this is again the sifting process or the whatever where yeah. <clears throat> you take a certain amount of pride in just having actually just completed the work in an organized fashion and being able to have put things in a way where you can find things quickly and like you know to a lot of people that's understandably like really dull you know <laughs> yeah. uh so you, i think you have to have a certain amount of um you know even if a lot of that is assistant editing duties i still think a good editor has at least some pride in uh in just that pure process organizational stuff yeah, yeah. yeah i agree that's kind yeah. of uh, the the problem solving aspect of it. Anytime I think of editing or the thing that draws me to editing or when I explain it to people is my love of the problem solving is kind of like how you said before, like kind of finding that diamond in the rough 
and giving it yeah. purpose. And it's the same, like, because for me, I every time I start on a new project, it's always I'm always anxious about it because there's that kind of yeah. um, that idea of uh, oh, I can't even think of the the concept. We're always talking about it where um, the imposter syndrome. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. someone's going to know that I'm I, I got, I'm, I'm not worth it. This is, you know, I'm the, the, I, I know that there's a problem here and it's going to get too far away from me. I won't be able to grab it. But then having that moment where then you it clicks, whether that be within like, okay, I'm looking at a mountain of footage and I need to get through it and like organize it in a way that then it becomes like that's one problem. And then after that, it's just a constant set of solving problems. And then to go along yeah. with like crossing those off the list i've completed it i am being i'm accomplished and stuff so <laughs> yeah yeah, it, yeah. It's, yeah all that stuff for sure it rings true so true and then and then i think also like i think a certain love of collaboration has to be there mm-hmm. um where uh you know because you're not gonna the, the editor doesn't get a ton of glory in general, you yeah, know, like yeah. you're not, you're, you're not the, I mean, most people don't know the names of the editors, <laughs> you I, know, I like you're not either. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're not, an, you're not a household name, even though, you know, you were a, a, a completely integral part of why the movie works, you know? So you have to be okay with that. And, and I, I think I'm only okay with it when I am in a, when I feel like I'm working with people who it's them that I'm performing for, you know, yeah. it's, yeah. it's yeah. Them, like they are, they, they know why, right. Yeah. They know how certain things came to be, how they were. And even if it's only, there's only a few of those examples ever mentioned in an interview or whatever, um, you know, that's between you and them. And that's what your, that's what your professional pride comes from, you know? Yeah. So for instance, I don't know why I'm choosing this, this super old example, but on lost in La Mancha, I mean, we won a, like the Daily Telegraph in London gave it the Peter Sellers Award for best comedy of the Mm. year, (laughs) which is, and it's a documentary and it's, if it's a comedy, it's a very dark comedy, (laughs) Um, but there are definitely comedic elements to it. Part of that is made possible by Miriam Cutler's score. Um, yeah. which is, is, is whimsical in some ways. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, uh, not to toot my horn too much, but, I, you know, a fair amount of it is possible because of what I brought to it in the editing. And there were, whole, there were sequences that we knew were going to be interesting scenes, but it was only once I put them together and showed them to Keith and Lou, who just bust out laughing. They were like, oh, my God, I had no idea this was going to be so entertaining, you know, yeah. um, where there's a, um, you know, there are just various scenes where it's I mean, it's a story of like anything that can go wrong in this production goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's just a it's a it's this horrible tragedy playing out before your eyes. But but, you know, the stakes are low. It's just a film. So, yes, you can. And it's also a. You know, it's about uh, Terry Gilliam's film about Don Quixote uh, not not getting made. He eventually, a decade and a half later or so, did finish it. But um, but there are scenes where you know, like they're out there in the middle of the desert in in uh, in were they in Andalusia? Anyways, they're in Spain. And, you know, like one thing after another has conspired against them being able to just shoot this damn scene. And there they are. Johnny Depp's there. He's ready for his take. It's all going well. And then there are these fighter jets that just blow over the, you know, it's like, like it's impossible. Like just these Mach 2, whatever, where like they can't record sound, like they can't do any dialogue now. Right. And you just have all these people who just... They're just all one after another. They all just look up at the sky. It becomes this moment of like, what now? Right. Um, So there are various moments in that film where like you had to have the 
you had to have the intuition, right? You had to have the feeling like, okay, there's something latent here. There's something that's here that, that like, it's only funny because we took it out of context and we put it together, but there's something very true about the emotional experience of it for the people who are there, who live through it, that, that makes it real. You know, you're just kind of like, you're, you're taking something and you're grabbing its, its pure essence. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's the little drops, you know, where you've distilled down the juice into the, the most bitter, you know, potent form of it. Um, where like that, yeah, like that's the thing that, that I think those little moments where like, you know, you saw the potential and therefore you just for yourself can take some pride in it. And you know that you had that little, you know, that little important part of it. Um, even though there were other things that you tried to do that didn't work and, um, but you were, uh, you, 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 you made it through without getting too upset about those, you know, Mm -hmm. Do you have your own favorite editing book or filmmaking book, uh, except your own, of course? The the two books that I take excerpts from uh, in in my editing class are Walter Murch's In the Blink of an Eye, which is eye. Um, yeah. maybe the... We made um, the video about this one as well. <laughs> the, you know, it's one of the most uh, cited um, books. And then there's yeah. this film by uh, the... the director and editor Edward Dimitrik called On Film Editing um, mm-hmm. that I also mm-hmm. like uh, from the, it's from like 83 or something. It's from the early 80s. And a lot of it is somewhat <laughs> dated, clearly, because technology has changed so much. But there are certain principles in that, and that's not about documentary editing. Um, but uh, there are there are concepts that he's getting at there that I think are, are, are strong. Um, I mean, there are loads of different little articles about documentaries that I bring in that are not really about editing per se, but are about breaking down what's the underlying logic of any given film um, that I just love. There's, um, I just came across this author, Sandy Flitterman Lewis, who turns out as a Facebook friend of a former student of mine, and her name came up, and she was criticizing. You know, um, uh, David Bogdanovich just died the other day, and I. I put in a, an unkind comment about him that I was, I wasn't endorsing the comment, but I was saying that someone else made it that she was criticizing me for. And I was like, Sandy Flitterman Lewis. Oh my God. Anyway, she wrote this great article <laughs> on this film, uh, night and fog, um, which is this Holocaust film from the fifties. Um, and you know, like when people can, uh, take their intellectual powers and look at a film and kind of, um, make you look at it in a new way and think about how, why it works the way that it does. She talks about how the past and the present are, are used in that film in very interesting ways. Um, so different individual articles that, uh, where I think someone has had a, a really interesting take on something that by reading it, you can kind of, you can think about something in a, in a way that you didn't before. And oftentimes it's not really about the editing per se, but it is about, they do tend to, I do tend to, Uh, be attracted to things that are about structure, which by its nature is about editing, yeah, you know? Yeah, 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 sure. And unless Ricky has uh, some other questions, uh, I just wanted uh-huh. to ask you what's next for you? What are you working on right now? And where, where can people follow your work? Uh, well, I've just turned in the manuscript for a new book. It's called How Documentaries Work. And it will be published in 2022, uh, no probably late, awesome. late summer, um, <laughs> by Oxford University Press. And it is, um, it's not a, so the book that we're talking about today is a, yeah. is a textbook. It's a how-to yeah. book that leads you step-by-step step through the process. This one 
uh, is not that, <clears throat> but it's so it's more of a think piece. But it goes through lots of individual um, aspects of documentaries and thinks them through with uh, with lots of quotes from practitioners. Mm. And uh, so it's a little more heady, uh, but there's a lot of, uh, as with this book, there are a lot of very specific examples. Um, and I sort of tried to tease out, all right, well, what are a lot of the common conventions in documentary? How can we think about how these conventions work and how can we kind of uh, bring them to the surface a little bit. This is stuff that you you probably somewhere in your brain kind of have noticed this, but you mm-hmm. maybe haven't thought about it in that way before. So um, so, anyways, that has been my major project for the last year plus. Um, and um, I have a couple of of editing projects that that may be the next thing for me that I'm not quite sure about yet um but the first uh, and then i am also writing a second edition of this book um oh, so oh, really? apparently there are people who really want to uh one thing that's that awesome. has been in one thing that's been in demand is is a chapter on short documentaries uh specifically mm-hmm. oh yeah and, I, I love that actually as well so well <laughs> you, i'm going to buy another one okay that's good i'm in your i'm in the same boat because i don't know what i'm going to write yet <laughs> <laughs> so cuz i didn't i have i mean i i i um i instruct students on making them all the time but i i haven't done a lot of thinking yet about what mm-hmm. what i can say specifically about shorts that mm-hmm. isn't also applicable to to longer form documentary work. So I'm going to have to figure that out. <laughs> um, so those are, those are things that I'm working on and you can, uh, I mean, I, I do have a website, jacobbricka.com. Um, and, uh, you know, if you Google me, you'll find the, the films that I've worked on and the, the book and now books soon that I've written. Well, thanks so much, That's Jacob, great. for, for your time. Hopefully we can thank you. This is have you back on the podcast for when the new, when any of your new books come out. <laughs> well, thank you. It, it's, it's a genuine pleasure to, to chat with you guys who, who clearly are thinking about uh, all this stuff in a, you know, in a, in a substantive uh, and interested way. I, I really enjoyed it. Okay. So that's it for today. I really have to tell you that, uh, you know, after reading the book, mm-hmm. It made me want to edit a documentary. So I might, you know, start working on one myself if I have to, <laughs> if, I, if, if no opportunities come my way. <laughs> I completely agree. I mean, I've done a number of documentaries myself already. And so talking to Jacob was like super inspiring. And I mean, he's done over 12 documentaries that I know of, at least, with his latest being Missing in Brooks County. Um, which if anybody's listening to this right now, (laughs) I highly suggest that you check out. Uh, So I hope you enjoyed the episode today, folks. And um, until the next time, shoot and edit like there is no tomorrow. (laughs) Thanks for taking time out of your busy day. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you've listened to this on. Your reviews help more people discover this show. You can also follow us on Instagram. Just search for at cut to reveal and tell your friends. And if you have any questions or comments, send them to podcast at cut to And who knows, maybe we'll use them in the future episodes. And as we say around here, until the next time, shoot and edit like there is no tomorrow. Mm-hmm.